0: Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthol, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Happy to be hosting today. We'll be talking about a very important uh, area of antitrust law, nas- nascent acquisitions and the incipiency doctrine. I'm joined by Ashish Agarwal, Tech Freedom's Deputy General Counsel, and more to the point today, our Competition Counsel, He is a veteran of the FTC and former general counsel of the Social Security Administration, among other posts. I'm also joined by Andy Young. He's a law clerk here at Tech Freedom and a 3L at George Mason's Antonin Scalia Law School. Ashish and Andy have a great new paper out. It's called, The Long and Successful History of Mason Acquisitions Suggests Caution in Rethinking Antitrust Enforcement. You can find their paper at Tech Freedom's website um, on SSRN, the Social Science Research Network. Um, I bet we will also get a copy of it into the show notes. Thanks for coming on guys. Um, It's a great paper. Uh, What led you to, uh, to write it now?
1: Well, first of all, Corbin, thank you so much for for hosting this. What led us to write the paper was you know, a desire to provide some historical perspective on this nascent competition um, concept that has been, you know, in the in the news quite a bit. That has been talking talked about by policymakers, and with the growth of you know big tech in particular in recent years, there you know, seems to be this sense that what big Big technology companies are doing in terms of acquiring, you know, smaller companies is somehow, you know, a, a brand new uh, business practice that deserves new scrutiny and perhaps even might require new, you know, you know, standards and enforcement mechanisms. What we wanted to do is take a look at, you know, the history of uh, corporate America and see if that is is, is the case. And as it turns out, guess what? There really is nothing new under the sun, at least in terms of of business practices. Uh, Plenty of companies in the past, large companies in the past, have uh, have purchased smaller companies in related markets.
0: The name nascent acquisition, a certain amount of it is just intuitive. You have a smaller company being purchased by a larger one. Uh, Would you say there's a more technical definition of nascent acquisition? And how does that connect to what's known as the incipient monopoly doctrine?
1: Sure. Well, you know, it really is very much an amorphous concept. The the general idea is that you have, you know, a large company that purchases a smaller company in a related market. Um, And the idea is that by purchasing that smaller company, the uh, larger company will have uh, uh, eliminated a nascent competitor or nipped in the bud an incipient competitor. So, you know you know for example, you know what one company acquisition that's talked about quite a bit now, there may be some litigation is uh, Facebook's purchase of Instagram a few years ago, and the idea is that if Facebook had not purchased Instagram, Instagram would have grown to become a full-fledged competitor
0: of Facebook. You've kind of already gotten into this, but why do you think this topic is so hot today? Why is it? attracting so much attention?
1: I think there's a real concern uh, across the political spectrum about, the, uh, about uh, the big technology companies in particular and their size and their scope and their power. And look, you have uh, these you know, handful of companies that have you know, multi-trillion dollar capitalizations um, in some cases that uh, are ubiquitous in terms of our personal lives, uh, particularly, you know, in the in the era of the coronavirus, and, and who's, uh, you know, arguable, who arguably have um, you know, the political power to, to to sway elections. At least that's what people would say. And, and given this concern um, about uh, you know big powerful companies, there's I think a very natural tendency across the spectrum to want to to rein them in or to to see if those companies you know, should be reined in. Uh, because maybe they're too powerful Um, the problem is in in one sense um, and and this is new um, from you know today's economy is is, is compared to the past is traditional antitrust criteria don't necessarily um, uh, get at what those companies do because in a lot of cases they're providing free products um, in services. So you don't have to pay a subscription fee to do a search on Google or to, um, you know, sign up for a Facebook account. So your traditional antitrust criteria of, you know, you know price and output, arguably some would say, uh, don't fit this, uh, you know, this new economy that we have. And so I think you have people who are concerned about the size of, you know, these big companies who are looking for ways and doctrines that might, uh, it might, quite frankly, cut them down to size. And I think the, the nascent competition doctrine is one way, one thing that people are
0: looking at. So there are some of the concerns people are having. On the flip side, I like the way you put it, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, large companies buy smaller ones, presumably for a, a reason. Uh, and it's not always nefarious, if ever. What are the benefits? Why, why do these acquisitions occur?
1: That is a great question. And let, let, let's turn it over to my co-author, Andy, to take the first crack at this one.
2: Uh, there's a few advantages. So large companies can use their existing marketing channels and their existing partnerships that they have to help bring new products to more people. And they can also use their expertise and partnerships to make sure that these young platforms, these nascent companies get off on the right foot and are able to grow and thrive and even survive to have the capital to uh, deal with legal issues early on and to, like I said, bring their products to more people. So there's definitely advantages in those ways.
0: Well, and Andy, your paper discusses a a seminal paper. If only your paper could get as many sites uh, academically as this one, Ronald Coase's The Nature of the Firm, which is a seminal paper, um, Could you tell me a bit about what Coase's thesis is in that paper and and how it connects to what you guys are talking about here? So in in Nature of the Firm, uh,
2: Coase observed that the size and shape of a firm are determined by a series of decisions and cost-benefit analysis that the internal managers make. So if a firm wants to introduce a new product or um, fix a product that they currently have or innovate on it, they have the option of of building that technology in-house and that can be expensive and risky, especially if it's a highly specialized company or they have the option of looking at the market and deciding if they want to buy that product on the market and integ- integrate it into their systems Or and then if, if they find a good match on the market, it might be most efficient for them to purchase a company and, and bring it and and purchase the company and merge with it. So Coase uh, was looking at the ways that firms shape themselves and how they uh, grow and put themselves together and nascent acquisitions uh, fit really well into his concept of
1: the cost benefit analysis that firms go through. By the way, Andy, uh, Ronald Coase wrote that paper as an undergrad so and later won the Nobel Prize for it. So I, I, I hope that you have uh, you know, achieved similar, will achieve similar success for things that you did as an undergrad.
2: Thank you, as a law student, it's, uh, it's impressive to know he wrote that as
0: someone who is even more junior than me, so. Like, like Caesar crying at the foot of the statue of Alexander, Andy is now seeing his life flash before his eyes. Coase also has one of my favorite quotes ever. If you torture the data long enough, eventually it will confess, but I digress. The center, the, the, the paper, the central, the heart of it is history. And so um, please, Ashish, tell us a bit about uh, what you guys uncovered as you looked at. I believe the main industries you focused on were uh, agriculture, aviation, automobiles. You, you got a little alliterative. Uh, what are some of the interesting findings you got from looking through those industries and, and history? Sure. And what we wanted to do is look at you know, industries that
1: have been around for a while, companies that have been around for a while, to look at their early history. Uh, you know, in one sense, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, these are, these, these are youngish you know, companies. They haven't been around for a century. Um, and a lot of the, the, the criticisms or concerns are about you know, acquisitions that those companies have made relatively early in their history. So we wanted to go back in time and look at uh, some you know, companies that have been well-established to look at how they grew early on. And what we found is, uh, lo and behold, uh, the growth of lots of our uh, you know, major corporations today, our iconic companies, were fueled in part by acquisitions. So I'll start by talking about uh, agriculture in, in John Deere. When uh, people think about John Deere, my guess is that the image that comes to mind is, is one of a green tractor. Well, uh, guess what? John Deere actually failed to develop uh, a tractor. Um, this is in the early twentieth century. They tried all sorts of models, and you know, all of them just just flopped. Um, so what they did, because their you know farmer base of customers were demanding uh, tractors, is they purchased another company, the Waterloo um, uh, Gasoline Engine Company, that had developed you know a very successful. A tractor, but that had you know relatively limited as compared to John Deere, you know, I mean, marketing budgets and distribution channels. Uh, John Deere uh, bought out uh, Waterloo, and bam, substantially increased you know output and sales of the tractors um, in a way that you know benefited consumers, benefited John Deere, and benefited um, the the
0: acquired company. And uh, I am actually recording from buchanan field airport in concord california uh, i should i should intro the podcast every day as saying i'm recording out of there um, so why don't you talk a little bit about aviation as well sure well uh you know what one, one great example is
1: uh you know boeing and you know today we think well but you know boeing is a, a global company but you know boeing got to start on the west coast by acquiring um, you know, a smaller uh, company called Pacific Air Transport. Pacific Air Transport in the 1920s was founded by a bus operator whose company drove, drove mail from you know, LA to Seattle. Um, it, Pacific Air got into the airline business, um, you know, purchased some aircraft to, to try to you know, expedite those deliveries. Uh, they had a tough go of it in their first couple of years. They lost a lot of uh, they lost a lot of aircraft. You know, things certainly weren't as reliable as they were today. Um, they were on the verge of bankruptcy, and Boeing came in, purchased them, immediately upgraded their aircraft, um, and expanded output again, which is something that you know, antitrust regulators really look at: is output expanding? And within two years, Boeing had tripled the number of. Uh, passengers that pacific air transport was carrying tripled its volume of mail um and and everybody won and when you bring that back to today you know if today's antitrust concepts had been in place a century ago no one could easily have said well gee you know pacific air transport is a you know it's a nascent competitor of boeing and if that sort of thinking had been in place a century ago you might have prevented some, some really pro-competitive acquisitions
0: from taking place. One thing you're doing as you discuss these stories um, is you're starting at the beginning, which sounds like something people should always be doing. And, and yet I feel like that's not happening in a lot of the current conversation. You mentioned Instagram and Facebook, for instance. And at the time, people, I mean... Uh, Facebook was actually mocked in some quarters for paying a billion dollars for Instagram. I mean, it looked kind of foolish buying a picture app in effect for that amount of money. And now everybody's completely forgotten about that. We are just looking at the success that occurred. And I think we're getting a lot of hindsight bias and we're, we're engaged, you know, people are engaging in the ex post fallacy. Uh, So I think your paper does a very good job of shifting us back and looking at things ex-ante. And what are the incentives when these purchases occur? Uh, Now, Corbin, this is something that we've talked uh, uh, talked about a little bit. Now, I I like to call it the
1: Tom Brady fallacy. So if if you recall, if you go back in time, Tom Brady was a backup quarterback for the University of Michigan, who was a sixth round draft pick by the New England Patriots. Um, who, of course, went on to win uh, multiple Super Super Bowls. You know, uh, with that sort of hindsight bias, you could say, well, gosh, if if the New York Jets or the Cleveland Browns had drafted drafted Tom Brady, you know, they would have been the ones to go on and win all these Super Bowls. But that's really, I don't think you can say that with any degree of confidence at all. You know, Tom Brady needed the support structure of bill belichick and another and an otherwise good franchise in order to grow and become a uh you know a super bowl champion and by the way it pains me to phase this because i'm not a new new england patriots fan you know at all but you know, for these purposes it's a good illustration so you you, you so you needed um you know you tom brady to go to a situation where he could grow now that's not to say that if another company had purchased face uh had purchased instagram or if instagram had had uh, you know, remained independent, that the same sort of growth wouldn't have happened. You can't say that with any confidence, but as, you, as you're alluding to, to go back in time and say, well, gosh, you know, now that we know that Instagram would have uh, you know, became this global success, um, we, we need to, uh, you know, to punish the acquiring company for that success, I, I think strikes uh, you know, a, a lot of people as, um, as, as a very do- dangerous road to trend. And yeah. to, to, to add to that list of companies,
2: that were sort of unknown. Um, YouTube started off as a video dating platform. The idea being that users would upload dating videos and meet each other in that way. And after not finding much success there, they pivoted to user uploaded videos and a few years later were purchased by Google. Uh, But early on, YouTube was having issues with monetization. They were having issues with copyrighted content. And within a year of being purchased, By Google, Google helped them launch their content verification program. Google helped them launch um, uh, Vevo, which is their copyrighted, um, their platform for copyrighted music videos. So YouTube's another story where there's no guarantee it would have been successful. And there's definitely no guarantee it would have grown into the reliable media platform that we all use it for now.
0: YouTube, I like also, it, you, you never have controlled scientific experiments in economics, at least in, at, at the higher level. And here you do have an analogy though that I find very striking. I mean, Napster had come along a few years before and they just jumped into the copyright minefield um, and they got obliterated, absolutely obliterated. And when YouTube was coming up, I mean, the notion of embedded video on the internet uh, everybody had Napster in mind. That was the paradigm of how do you make a widespread internet media app work without getting into the copyright thicket. And people forget that a small company was always going to struggle with that kind of stuff, and that Google had the capital to uh, make deals, deal with the transaction costs, deal with the IP costs, uh, and and get everything straighted, straightened out and make a success of video apps. So I think it's just such a great example. Uh, conversely, I, I also see a lot of talk these days as if every new entrant on the market is um, sort of ripe for the picking and is going to be, Um, pushed around by bigger competitors. And although I'm sure that that is possible and it happens, people forget that some of these big successes now were themselves small competitors and had no interest in being bought out. I mean, Barnes & Noble really tried to um, get close with Jeff Bezos and take him out to dinner and and offer them that, that deal he couldn't refuse. And he turned them down cold. And he fought on and he conquered. I mean... Um, similarly with uh, Netflix, everybody thought that as soon as Blockbuster got its act together and got online, it would just destroy Netflix and exactly the opposite happened. So I really like that your paper goes far back and shows that that these stories you know the ones that we've just now been talking about in the past couple decades um, really it 's been that way for a century and more. That said, I would be remiss if i didn't turn around and play some devil's advocate and ask you guys a few questions um, to to probe the issue of why isn't this time different? Um, We're in a very different economy from what existed in the era of some of your historical examples. Um, So one question I have for you is, what should we do with big data and with our new information age You know, the House Antitrust Report points out that modern firms like Facebook and Amazon have um, a lot of data that they can use to identify specific competitive threats and try to acquire things very selectively to snuff out competition. So do we need to think about adjusting the rules to deal with that kind of information asymmetry?
1: Well, you know, Corbin, like we talked about earlier, there really is nothing new under the sun in, in in one sense. So, you know, big data has been around for a long time, and it has always been the case that large companies, successful companies uh, at least, um, gather data from their sales in order to better tailor products and to reach more consumers and to increase their market share. A great example is, you know, a&- the A&P grocery chain. Uh, former uh, FTC chairman Tim Mears has a great paper on this in which he talks about how, you know, a which was an East Coast um, grocery store chain, used its, uh, the, you know, the data that it was getting from, you know, its sales of, you know, you know, milk, cheese, and other products in order to really target specific geographic markets at specific price points um, to gain market share. And what happened, it was, you know, something out of Atlas Shrugged. A uh, and P's competitors didn't like the fact that they were competing so successfully and under, undercutting their prices, and you know, uh, you know, ganged up and passed uh, you know legislation that really cut the knees out from under what A and P you know was able to do. Um, if you look at today's economy, uh, certainly you have you know the largest retailer in the country is Walmart. Uh, you have Costco out there. I promise you that they are using data from their sales to figure out where it makes sense for them to um you know develop you know private label brands so they can offer products
0: to consumers at lower prices and that is good and that's healthy and that's how the economy should work the other thing i was very uh, i was i was wanting to pick your brain about ashish the paper discusses some isolated acquisitions um, as as examples that we should have in mind and i definitely think that's right But one thing you hear a lot about today is the fact that Facebook and Google, they're not just acquiring a company here and a company there. You know, Instagram may make the headlines, but they are acquiring lots and lots of startups. Uh, The statistic in the House report, I don't know if it's up to date, but it says Facebook has acquired 63 companies since 2004. So why doesn't that make things, you know, why isn't this time different because of the scale of the acquisitions that's occurring?
1: well i'll I'll say two things, and then and then Andy might want to chime in uh so so f- first of all you know i'm you know I'm not saying and and Andy and I are not saying in our paper that there is no antitrust case to be had you know against Facebook or Google. you know we'll we'll just have to see what uh, you know what 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 the evidence is and and there are um you know you know allegations out there that you know uh, you know some of these companies have been particularly targeting you know c- competitors to snuff them out, and we'll see we'll see if a lawsuit is filed. Um, you know, along these lines, what the you know what the, what the information shows. Um, but the second point is in the in the research for our paper, you know, we found lots of industries and lots of companies where there were also multiple acquisitions early in their history. So we don't talk about you know Chrysler in our paper. But I'll tell you, having just skimmed through Chrysler's corporate industry, in history. Lots and lots of um, lots and lots of of, of purchases. You know, general Electric, General Motors, on and on. So, um, you know, I can't speak to whether 63 acquisitions over this time period is, is is a lot as compared to other companies historically. But I'll tell you that in general, um, it it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of other corporations um, early in their history had similar acquisition patterns.
2: One thing I would add is that a point that Ashish made earlier is that. Google and these services are offering a free service to consumers. They're not trying to sell them a product. So a lot of these acquisitions go towards building out this free offering they have, and a lot of times acquiring more data so they can know more about their customers. But it's not to drive out competitors so that they can sell a product that a competitor was selling previously. It's it's to improve upon a free service that they're offering to consumers. And so I would say that makes a difference as well.
0: Yeah, connected point, and something I find interesting, I'm not deep on the latest academic research on this, but a lot of these companies are spinning off uh, new talent into startups of their own as quickly as they're acquiring talent. I mean, Google is so much talent, you know, so many people who go to the big company, get experience, go out, get an idea of their own and start up a company. And that too is something that's been going on throughout history. I mean, Ford Motor Company uh, was that way. It spawned off competitors. Um, and uh, I really do hope that as these things go forward, that is part of the discussion. And th- that relates to yet another point I wanted to discuss with you guys. It, big tech, big tech, big tech. We're always talking in antitrust these days about big tech. I I like to say to people that, you know, I, I wish antitrust would get away from the shiny object of big tech a bit and think more about um, the, the people producing sand in one tri-state area or something, that's where actually you're more likely to get collusive agreements um, that, that actually violate the antitrust laws. And we never talk about that kind of thing. We, we, we are all focused on big tech all the time. Um, Ashish, are there, should we be worried about how other industries would be affected by a stricter approach to nascent acquisitions? Oh, abs- absolutely,
1: Corbin. So, you know, you know, first of all, the way you frame the question um, in a sense, you know, raises a question of what is a big tech company? Because, you know, there's you know, studies out there showing how, uh, you know, Walmart um, and you know, other Fortune you know, 50 companies are investing heavily in technology. I have a friend who works at General Motors who tells me that General Motors um, is not a car company. It is a technology company. And what they're, you know, selling and trying to hone is technology to, you know, improve, you know, the products that they sell. So, um, you know, just on its own terms within the tech world, I think you would you would rope in, uh, you, know, you know, lots of our leading companies. But beyond that, um, you, you you absolutely raise, um, you know, a, a great point, which is that there are so many startups out there in fields outside of tech who are looking for financing who who's The dream of those entrepreneurs isn't necessarily to become the next General Motors or the next Google. It's to be acquired by those companies. Those entrepreneurs can cash out and move on to the next thing. That's a very healthy dynamic for um, our our economy, for our country. And I think anything that would uh, change those standards, I think we have to be really concerned the changes wouldn't just be limited to, you know, the big bad boogeyman of big tech, but that could ripple across the economy. Andy, you've got a lot of experience, I know, um, know, in the tech sector and elsewhere, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I worked
2: for three startup companies after undergraduate and two of them have now gone on to be purchased. And one was purchased by Walmart to improve their customer loyalty technology. So my experience has very much been that, founders want to start a company that they can change the market with and and the market they try to enter. But sometimes it's not possible. And the best exit route is to end up at one of these big companies where the technology continues to exist and continues to get utilized.
0: Yeah, I do find it interesting. It it seems kind of half-baked to me. I know I know I, I have my priors and my perspective, but we're going to stop big companies from buying smaller competitors and to me the message to smaller competitors is hey if you start a company if you leave Google and you make that startup you're going to have to fight the big company to the death because we're going to take away one of your best exit routes I, and I I just kind of wish that was emphasized a bit more
1: and I know that there are, there are concerns out there That uh, you certainly resonate with people at uh, you know at at, at one level. Gosh, you have these huge companies out there. But what I would you know remind folks is we have a very dynamic economy out there. You know, new companies are popping up uh, or failing all the time. Just in the past you know couple of years, you've had the growth of, of of Snapchat and TikTok and Zoom and others. It is not the case that new companies are. Uh, you know, forbidden by these you know, various uh, you know, barriers to entry from getting into the marketplace. Um, companies, you know, a- a- adapt or they don't. And if, and if they don't, they'll, you know, they'll fail. And I think it would be a very, you know, dangerous world, economically speaking, if we, you know, designate some regulators sitting in Washington to you know, determine the optimal number of competitors that have to exist in the marketplace, particularly in a, a sector of the economy of, of tech that, that, it, that is very dynamic.
0: Well, you've heard it here, folks, Ad- adapt or die. Um, Ashish, Andy, any, any final takeaways? You
1: no, know, my, 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 my final takeaways would be uh, you know, caution and humility. As we're thinking about this uh, from a public policy standpoint, let's just be very careful and understand history before we look to uh, you know, change you know, change the rules.
0: I second that. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Shisha Garwal, Andy Young, their paper is The Long and Successful History of Nascent Acquisitions Suggests Caution in Rethinking Antitrust Enforcement. Please check out the full paper. Uh, I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. It's been great to have you guys. Until next time. Thanks. Thank you.